If you're looking for inspiration and challenge in the world of early years and Key Stage 1 education, then you've just found it. Welcome to the Early Excellence Podcast. Hello, everybody. I'm Andy Burt. Welcome along to episode 43 of the Early Excellence Podcast. This week, we're delighted to welcome Professor Sam Wass from the University of East London to the podcast. Sam is a child psychologist and neuroscientist specialising in concentration and stress in young children. You might recognise Sam as one of the on-screen child psychologists in the popular Channel 4 programmes, The Secret Lives of Four-Year-Olds and The Secret Lives of Five-Year-Olds. Now, as part of my chat with Sam, we discuss all sorts of things, really. We talk about what is concentration. We also talk about stress alongside concentration. And an interesting one, I think, also for you EYFS teachers and practitioners, we talk about controlling environments to improve concentration and also how children respond to repetition. Okay, so we cover all sorts of things that I think you'll find really interesting. All right, so here you go. Here I am in conversation with Professor Sam Wass. So I'm uh, Professor Sam Wass and I'm an expert in um, uh, early years development. So we start really with babies going through to, you know, reception year one. Um, and the main focus of my research is looking at stress and concentration and the relationship between the two and how they develop through the first few years of life. Uh, and we look a lot at uh, typically developing babies uh, and children, uh, but we also look at the early stages of uh, clinical conditions such as autism spectrum disorders, uh, attention deficit disorder, um, anxiety and affective disorders and so on. It sounds absolutely fascinating, Sam, your work. I have to say, and in in the lead up to the to interviewing you today, I've been I've been like a stalker. I've been watching all of your YouTube clips. I've literally watched your whole back catalogue, Sam. So um, I feel like I know I know such a lot about your your work just from the kind of the potted history of what I've watched. So I'm you know I'm delighted that you that you're joining us for the podcast. I'm you know really really pleased that you, you you've given us a bit of time to be able to share some of your work and some of the research that you've done um the you're going to talk to us aren't you about concentration which of course for people who are listening in um earliest teachers earliest practitioners that's always going to be high up on the kind of the, the agenda i suppose of what we talk about and what we think about as early as teachers because focus and concentration are key aren't they really yeah it's definitely something that gets talked about a lot and it's definitely one of the areas that is very often uh, when you know kids are getting flagged it's very often one of the areas that gets flagged as children and um, I guess kind of I don't know it's always been my main interest um, uh, kind of as a research Andy I guess for me the big thing that I want to talk about today is you know we often talk about young children not concentrating as well as adults but the main point that I want to talk about is how children aren't is maybe it's not the best way to think of children as worse at concentrating just at how they concentrate differently um, and how that brings about strengths in their learning in some ways uh, just as it means that there are other things that they're particularly hard about so the thing that we're going to be talking about today is not talking about deficits but talking about difference yeah i have to say i was watching one of the clips earlier on and um and one of the things that I found fascinating, I'm sure you'll come to this, so I, I don't want to jump the gun, but was the idea that, that in some respects children 
are better at concentrating than adults. So in some ways, I found that fascinating because we don't often talk about that, do we? We don't often think about that. We think about preparing children to be as good at concentrating as adults and that that's our job. And yet, actually, I think that idea of children being actually better than adults in some respects at concentrating is, is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So there are kind of two ways that I often think about that, actually, Andy. So one, I, I've got a friend who's also a, a child neuroscientist and she walks her four year old to nursery um, and to school now every day. And she says, I love walking my son to school because every day he notices something different. So, you know, he'll notice a tiny little bit of graffiti on the pavement or he'll notice like a butterfly, you know, uh, uh, there on the on the lamppost. And she just says, I would just, if it were just me or mine, I would just walk straight past all those things. You know, as an adult, you get so used to, and there's loads of research that this is, that this is actually how our brain processes information. You know, as an adult, we see, we're so good at concentrating on what we're looking for you know so i'm walking down the street i'm looking for potential sources of danger uh, you know other cars crossing the road and so on you know a lamppost that i might bump into and so on that that really is all we see you know as adults we're so good at concentrating we only see what we're looking for whereas children they don't have that ability yet for reasons we're going to be getting into so they actually see what's there in front of them um, um and a lot of people who work in early years you know say this is exactly what they love about children this freshness you know it's not about our predisposed ideas for you know what we actually you know see it's really not a question that you know we're seeing it and blocking it out you know we don't actually process things that we're not looking for and children don't have that so they have this naivety and they, they really see what's in front of them yeah. interesting yeah. actually i think quite a lot of quite a lot of what i i often talk about as part of training is that idea of if you are going to if you're going to improve your practice then in one way get better at looking at the world as your children would see it, you know, get better at noticing the things that children will notice, because by tuning into what children will notice, you will be able to then improve your environment. So something like, you know, shadows, for example, in an outdoor area on a on a winter's day will be long drawn out shadows on a bright sunny day in winter. And as adults, we will walk straight through that area and not notice that. Whereas a three-year-old child will stand there and lift their leg up and then put their arms out and then reach up high and explore how that shadow changes as they move. And yet we as adults miss that, don't we? Yeah, yeah that's lovely. And, you know, the other thing that I always think about that, which in a lot of ways makes it even more sad to think about, is there is also research that, you know, that ability as an adult to just simply be aware of what, what is in front of us, you know, exactly what comes naturally to a child, as you're saying, Andy, um, that comes and goes with our mood. Uh, so th there's a lot of research, and I notice this in myself, and I definitely notice this, you know, in members of my family and, and people I work with. When you're in a low mood, when you're feeling particularly anxious or feeling depressed or that type of thing, that ability just to sit and see what's there in front of us, yeah, see what a child is interested in and follow and support, you know, what they're interested in, that comes and goes. So, you know, when, when I'm anxious and a child is not doing what I expect them to do, I'm much more likely to go into, no, 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 I want you to be doing this, or you're supposed to be doing this, or you know you not paying attention affects me in this way we get we uh, kind of a low mood as adults kind of means that we're more stuck in our perspective so that idea of just 
I'm going to see what's there in front of me. You know, I'm going to see what the, my children are, are interacting with. I'm going to follow and support. We need to be in a good state to do that. So, so that's another thing uh, that, you know, it's one of the things we're going to be talking about, quite a lot about meditation. And, and that is kind of a very old, very well-developed and now very, very evidence-based. There's a massive amount of research um, into meditation now. Um, and that's one of the things that you really work at as an end goal, you know, that ability just to sit and just be aware of what's there. Yeah, not be, you know, I'm looking for this or I'm trying to do that. Just they call it kind of open awareness, open mindfulness. So uh, that is definitely something that children comes easily to children. Fantastic. Fantastic. So you're going to be taking us through a process, really, aren't you, of, of, of thinking about perspectives on concentration what we think about as what we think about in terms of children's concentration and then also some things that will support children in in terms of developing concentration skills and interestingly it's not it's i think it what i think is fascinating is that it's not the most obvious journey you know, I yeah. think quite often in schools, there's a certain process that we go through, which is, you know, get the children to look carefully at you, make sure you've got that eye contact, make sure that they're listening and, you know, and all of that kind of thing. Um, and what I love about what you're talking about here, all, the, all of the research that underpins what you're talking about, is that actually it's far, far more complex than that. It's not just about attention. It's concentration is far more than that, isn't it? Yeah, so that's that's where I want to come to at the end. And certainly, yeah, talk about some research that I've done, you know, looking at different ways of trying to improve children's concentration. But let's just start and just by talking. Um, so just kind of what exactly is it that we mean? You know, so uh, so I do a lot of kind of research papers and you always need to start with a very kind of formal definition of what exactly it is that we're looking at. So I guess when we're thinking formally, there are a variety of different ways that we can um, uh, define concentration. So probably the most famous is um, William James, who was the kind of godfather of um, uh, psychology writing in the late 19th century and he talks about it as concentration is the taking possession by the mind in clear and vivid form of one out of what seems several simultaneously possible objects or trains of thought yeah Um, and then it implies withdrawing from some things in order to deal effectively with others Um, and it's a condition which is the real opposite of the confused day's scatterbrain state yeah. So that is kind of a, a, a definition of concentration that immediately would make sense to a lot of people. Um, a couple of kind of more practical examples of things that we do. So one um, uh, study that um, I'm um, thinking a massive amount at the moment, we're doing some research, which, which I'll get onto in, in schools, looking at kind of noise and how it affects performance. Uh, but one famous um, study that everybody learns about in adult psychology is something called the cocktail party effect, uh, which is if um, I'm in a situation, which we're very, very commonly in, where there are about five different conversations, you know, hitting my eardrums at once. So I imagine I'm in a restaurant uh, and I'm talking to the person opposite me, but then I can also hear other people talking to me. Yeah. Or, you know, in a cocktail party, which was kind of what gave it its name. Um, if I choose to, so if you put someone in a brain scanner, for example, and you, and you put them in this situation where they can hear five different uh, speech streams happening at once, and then you say, okay, I want you to be paying attention to the woman who is talking now, yeah? And you measure their brain activity, you can actually see their brain 
it, the, the temporal patterns of firing in their brain starting to match the patterns of firing in the speech that you're paying attention to. Yeah. So you become less sensitive to the speech that you're blocking out and you become more sensitive to the speech that you're pay paying attention to. Yeah. Uh, so that's called the cocktail party effect. That's our brain, you know, tuning, like actively tuning into, you know, noisy kind of messy signals outsiders. And the reason I'm thinking a lot about that at the moment is there's really good research now that this is exactly the type of thing that children, for reasons I'm going to go into, exactly the type of thing that children find much harder to do. So they've actually done exactly that task with children and they, you can see in their brains that their brains aren't so effective at doing that. Yeah. Um, uh, and as I say, we understand quite well now why that is, you know, that we're certainly expected to find that. And, and that is now what we found. It's also an issue because early years classrooms are this situation where, you know, if ever you're in a situation where you have 10 conversations going on at once, you know, uh, those are the types of environments. So we have this irony that children's brains find it much harder to filter out distracting background information and yet they're spending a lot of time in, in settings that are super super full of distracting background information yeah that's i think that's really interesting and that and, and also i think sometimes we we add to that as adults within the classroom don't we you know that we that often there are lots of lots of lot, there, there is lots of noise lots of different voices you know you've got maybe two maybe three adults within the room as well and you've got children there accessing a range of different things and that that actually we are expecting an awful lot of children to focus to concentrate within a space like that aren't we yeah and the tricky thing is it's such an internal thing this concentration that often we're not aware just of how hard children... I mean, most people aren't aware that children find it harder to block out, to, to block out distracting information than us because it's such an internal thing that it's very, very hard to be aware of. You know, Obviously, you can see behaviourally if a child's looking up at noise, but often there'll, there'll, there'll be this struggle going on inside their head in terms of controlling what they're aware of. Yeah? We're very good at it as adults, so we don't tend not to be aware necessarily that children find it so much harder than we do because you know, it's such an internal thing, concentration. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tell you what, it, it makes me think. I make me wonder as well whether whether children coming out of the kind of the lockdown situation, you know, a, a year or two ago, whether that then had more of an impact for children then coming into their noisier earlier settings. That actually the difference between the two would be even more of a marked difference, and therefore more have more of an impact. I wonder. I don't know. That's a really interesting uh, question, Andy. I, I actually don't know of much research on that. There's quite a lot of research on, you know, how lockdown affected children's general cognitive, um, uh, you know, language performance and that type of thing. But I actually don't know anything on their concentration. It's a really good, good, interesting question. Interesting thought, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so basically, yeah. So what? So the so basically, what I wanted to um, kind of go on to now, looking at my notes for for what I wanted to go through. So. What I wanted to go into was basically, actually, first, let me just mention another uh, way that we can think about concentration, because that's, um, uh, you know, will we'll, we'll inform a, a lot of what we're talking about. So I mentioned earlier meditation training, which, as I say, is very um, kind of evidence based uh, as a form of concentration. So one of the ways that you start with meditation 
Yeah. So as I mentioned, a lot of the end goal of meditation is just this open awareness. Yeah. As, as you mentioned earlier, um, that just this idea of just you're, you're aware of things that are in front of you like a child just naturally is. But actually, one of the early training techniques for meditation is exactly the opposite of that. Yeah. Rather than just being openly aware of everything around us, you try to do the opposite and you try to shut down your attention onto just one particular thing. Yeah. So one of the um, uh, things that um, you do in meditation is something called candle gazing. Yeah. And basically that is you're, you're staring at a candle in front of you and you're trying not to blink. Yeah. And if you um, manage uh, to not blink for, you know, about 10 or 20 seconds, your eyeball starts to get dry and this automatic blink reflex kick, kicks in. Yeah. If you manage to shut down your awareness to think about just that one thing, I mustn't blink, I mustn't blink, I mustn't blink, you can override your automatic blink reflex. And I've seen people who are really good at doing it and their eyes are kind of really kind of watering all the way down like that. And the second your mind wanders onto something else, you just blink before you've realised it. Yeah. So, so that is another way of thinking about concentration. And it's very much like a mental muscle. Yeah. How good am I at pulling my, so you often use the metaphor of an attentional spotlight, yeah, so how, how can I narrow down the, the, the beam, uh, the torch beam that is my attention onto a really, really precise area, and how in control am I of what I'm looking at, yeah, um, so that traditionally is exactly the type of thing um, that we, we traditionally think of um, children, uh, young children, as finding harder, yeah? Um, and there's loads of um, uh, kind of experimental evidence um, um, that, that children do find that type of thing harder. Uh, so there's one kind of task that I think they actually, educational psychologists do actually give sometimes where you have three fish and you have to say which way is the middle fish pointing and basically you look at how distracted they are by whether the side fish are pointing the same direction as the middle fish or the opposite direction. Um, and every child finds it easier when all three fish are pointing the same way, but some children are better just at looking at the middle fish and ignoring the, 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 the fish on their side. So those are the types of uh, ways that we know that children find this type of concentration, just shutting down the focus of their attention harder. Um, and we also understand quite well now why uh, we think it is. Um, um, and that's because um, uh, the, the part of the brain that we think does that, this bit kind of under the forehead um, at the front called the frontal cortex, um, uh, is the slowest part of the brain to develop. So if you look in uh, the brains of a, uh, you know, a five-year-old child, some parts of the brain, you know, the bits at the back that process visual information, uh, the bits at the bottom that do control our kind of heart rate and our breathing and that type of thing, they're pretty much the same in a five-year-old child compared to an adult. But the bits at the front under the forehead, these bits called the frontal cortex that do our, you know, higher order things like concentrating, uh, like planning in advance, uh, and also remembering things for short periods of time, those types of things, they're very slow developing. And we realise now that from brain scans that even in our early 20s, those parts of the brains are still developing. So those are the last parts of the brain to mature. So that basically is the kind of what I'd say the traditional approach to understanding um, children's concentration, um, which is just that they find this kind of effortful process of guiding their attention harder um, it's a very slow developing thing. And the reason for that is because the parts of the brain that do that are the slowest parts of the brain to develop. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but as you say, Andy, kind of that, that is a kind of what I wanted to have as a starting point. Um, 
And I'm now very much thinking of concentration in very different ways that aren't so much to do with that kind of effort, that effort thing. But but that, I'd say, is a kind of the traditional way of approaching concentration yeah. and, and why it's it, it is. It is really interesting, isn't it, that, that when you think about that, the, that, that frontal part of the brain and that we now know, as you say, that, that actually that doesn't fully develop until your 20s, that actually by that point, of course, traditionally we have finished with our education by that point, you know, which is a funny, it's a strange way of thinking about it, isn't it? That actually, you know, we are doing what we would call our education process throughout the period in which actually that frontal cortex isn't developed. Yeah, there there is actually some research. I don't know very well, actually, that is it, is it that the brain is, your brain is developing until your 20s? Or is it that as long as you're in education and learning, then your brain is still developing and, and this part of the brain in particular thing. So it would be, we just don't know, but you know, 500 years ago when everyone finished education at 14 and went to work in the fields, it probably would have had an impact on where your, when, the, when your brain was still developing. But we just don't know, of course, because we don't have brain scans yeah. for 500 years. And it years is ago. that sort of plasticity, isn't it, of the brain as well, that actually, I guess the, the grey area there is because of that plasticity. So you don't, you don't kind of, you, there's a kind of cause and effect process of not knowing whether the education process is having an effect on the brain development or whether the brain development is having an effect on the education process, I guess. Yeah, there was a study about people um, who go then back into education during later adulthood or change careers or that type of thing, but I can't remember what it showed. It would have been interesting if it did just kind of reawaken. Uh, This is fascinating, Sam. Thank you. This is brilliant. Yeah. Um, So I guess the next thing I I wanted to um, talk about, Andy, was just so basically, so for my PhD, so that's kind of 10, um, uh, 12 years ago now, um, I actually kind of starting from this kind of traditional framework of children's concentration, actually, my brief was to design some games to train concentration skills in very young children. So we were working actually mainly with 12-month-old uh, babies. Yeah, and the, and the thinking behind it was, you know, you just mentioned this idea of brain plasticity, and, and we know that um, brain plasticity, so our ability to change our brain, basically, is higher the earlier you start in development. Um, so on paper, it, it makes a very good scientific case that if you've got a child who um, <clears throat> you're worried isn't going to develop so well, yeah? So, so, for example, in ADHD, for example, if a child, when they start school, you know, isn't so well able to concentrate, then they're more likely to get told off. Yeah, we know that getting told off also makes us even harder to concentrate. They're more likely to get an idea that they're not performing so well at school, which means they lose motivation, which also makes it harder to concentrate. So the idea is you, you go into these kind of cycles so that when you, when you have a small difference um, at the start of education, that difference basically gets exaggerated over time. Yeah, the kids who do a little bit better to start with gain motivation and work harder and do better and better and better. And the children who do a little bit worse lose motivation and then they kind of the, the differences get bigger and bigger. So the idea was, you know, if we can pick up these high high, high risk children really early in um, development and try to train some of their key learning skills as early as we can, um, uh, then that ought to kind of help 
um, uh, stop these problems from developing before they've had a chance to get too serious. Yeah. So that was the thinking. So it, it kind of makes sense scientifically. Um, got funding by the Medical Research Council. So we were working with typical children, but also with uh, babies with uh, first degree siblings with um, attention deficit disorder, uh, and also uh, children with uh, siblings with uh, autism disorders. Because if you've got an if you've got an elder sibling with an autism, you're more likely to get it yourself, just as with ADHD. Um, and what we did was kind of very much from this kind of what I'd say this traditional approach to concentration. So, you know, the candle gazing example. So um, I was trying to kind of think about ways that you can use that type of paradigm um, to train concentration skills. Uh, so we were using an eye tracker, so a little kind of, in fact, you can do it now with any laptop, basically. The little camera at the top can, can work out where on the screen you're looking. Um, and then we had things like um, uh, a butterfly on screen uh, that when you looked at the butterfly, um, uh, it moved, um, but at the same time as it moving, kind of distracting um, um, things started coming up in the, in the edge on the edge of the screen. Yeah, we're going to be getting onto this later. But when we see have movement in our visual field, yeah, it automatically tries to pull our attention over. Yeah, so basically the only way to progress on the paradigm, very much like this candle gazing, was to shutter your attention down onto one thing. Yeah, uh, this butterfly. And, and ignore this urge to look to anything else that looked move, that, that was moving and was interesting on screen. Yeah. And we did paradigms uh, like that for, uh, you know, across quite a few different um, training sessions. I spent a long time and had a lot of fun uh, designing all the graphics and all the sounds um, and that type of thing. Um, and that was that. And, and, and basically, the long and short of it is 10 years later, um, um, they, the babies love playing the games, but they don't actually have very much effect on anything else. Yeah, um, it's taken 10 years and uh, really quite a lot of money. I'm not going to say um, how much taxpayer money has been spent on this, but it's just the way that you do science. You know, we had some, you know, encouraging early studies, uh, quite a few kind of encouraging early studies. And then you scale them up and up and up. Um, and the last study um, that we did with babies at risk of ADHD really showed, you know, no effects at all from training, which was, you know, a real pain because we spent years and years working on it. But that's all that's all you can do. All you can do as a scientist yeah. is just shrug and go on to the next thing. So I guess, you know, uh, uh, I think we're kind of realising that this type of training um, doesn't uh, actually practically work, even though we think it ought to improving children's concentration has got me, you know, questioning, I guess, a lot of what I would describe now as the traditional approaches to viewing concentration um, for reasons I, I can go on to. Um, but also thinking practically about other things that we can do. You know, as you mentioned, Daniel, I want to get onto this at the end, kind of other things that I can do other than this, you know, concentration is a mental muscle. Uh, you have to train it. And the more you, you know, very much like doing bicep curls, you know, this approach to concentration is very much, you know, I've got to train it as a mental muscle. If I've got a child who doesn't concentrate, then I'm going to put them into special, you know, concentration training exercises to try to improve their concentration. You know, not just us, but quite a lot of people have tried doing that. There's a lot of interest in this something called working memory training that some people might have heard of uh, which a group called Pearson that they do working memory training for older children again honestly there's been a lot of money gone into developing that there's very little evidence that it works um, uh, so I think the field generally is moving now towards okay it's not useful to think of it like a mental muscle what else can we be doing you know how else can we be thinking to try to improve children's concentration so that's kind of the main stuff that I wanted to talk about yes yeah yeah and and I think it's it's very interesting. I I think in certainly in schools, quite often I f I find that that we talk a lot about content about what we want children to be learning you know, about the curriculum content and coverage, 
we don't really have enough conversations, I think, around what you're talking about, and that is what underpins that, you know, the the concentration. You know, how do we make sure that those children are in at that optimum point for learning yeah. ahead of that? Because actually otherwise we're not going to make we're not gonna hit what we're wanting to get to. We're not gonna get to where we want to get to, or certainly not not to the greatest potential if yeah. those children are not focused or not engaged or not really not absolutely engrossed in what we're doing yeah honestly Andy it's always something yeah I always think ought to be more um, more talked about and more featured um, yeah, yeah. yeah I guess yeah and I guess one of the reasons that I think that's particularly important is is the next thing that I wanted to go on to talk about which is the kind of main focus of my research in in, in lots of ways which is understanding the relationship between a child's emotional state and their concentration, yeah? Yes. So basically this traditional approach, which is, you know, you have your frontal cortex um, and that, you know, sends these, you know, shutters down the spotlight of your attention, uh, you know, it is quite a, you know, unemotional kind of way of thinking about it, you know? So you can think, you know, traditionally, you know, people think that some children are just good at concentrating and some children aren't, yeah? And I guess a lot of the stuff um, that I wanted to talk about is, is this idea that there's a massive amount of research now that this isn't how children pay attention and learn, um, in particular talking about their emotionality, yeah, and how that influences their concentration and learning. And that's something I think super, super important um, uh, to, for, for, for people, you know, working day to day with children to be aware of. And again, you know, as you say, Andy, it's really not something that, that, that tends to be covered, you know, or tends to be discussed a lot. Um, so you kind of so that we know that there are things like you know tiredness and hunger um and and there's research that those types of things ha have a massive amount of, of, of uh, have a large effect on you know how distractible children are that type of thing the thing that i particularly do is um, looking at stress so kind of um short-term and long-term levels of stress in children um so we can think about stress. So stress is just to just to give a brief definition before we go on to talk about, you know, how it, how it influences concentration. So stress can we think of as a very long term thing. So there's a lot of research think, talking where that does questions like, you know, have your, you know, ha, how much marital discord is there in the home? How many different family, how many different parental figures do you have in the home? You know, you know, adults kind of, you know, unemployment, you know, in prison, ill health, those types of kind of long term stresses. So that's definitely something that we, that we measure in children. And we also measure kind of stress in terms of a short term thing. So basically, we've got these two systems in our body, our fight or flight system, uh, which basically is is our body re preparing ourselves to be in a fight right now. So our heart starts to beat faster. We start to sweat. We start to to, to get us to cool down. We get a big release of energy because because our bodies are readying themselves to do some you know uh, some physical activity. So that's one state that we can be in, or we can be in rest or digest, which is basically the opposite. You know, your your, your heart slows down to conserve energy and so on. Um, and basically. Adults have them, you know, we're always swinging between these two modes, fight or flight or rest or digest, and children have them too. So we can measure, and this is what we do a lot, we measure how children are swinging between these two modes during the course of the day. So we've got two types of stress. We've got this long term, you know, has something long term happened to a child um, that, that might be affecting them? Um, and also what state is that child in now in this minute? You know, has something just happened five minutes ago that's put them in fight or flight and, 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 and done that, yeah. yeah? And the reason that both of these things are really, really important for children is 
So I mentioned earlier that the emotion centres, that the emotional parts of the brain um, are very well developed, even in a five-year-old, yeah? Whereas the bits that traditionally do concentration um, are less well developed. And because of that, we think that a lot of the, um, uh, the, the, the kind of the process involved in actually paying attention happen more in the emotion centres in young children than they do in adults, yeah? Um, and we certainly have massive amount of evidence that children's emotional state really, really has a big impact on how well they can concentrate and pay attention, yeah? Uh, so we know that, you know, this idea of kind of shuttering things down, saying, I, I just want to focus on one thing, which funnily enough is linked to this, you know, I just want to be aware of stuff around me, you know, that is much harder when we're at high stress, yeah? So we find it much harder, everybody finds it harder to filter out distractions, you know, when you're in a high stress state, you know? So my example that I always think of is, you know, I spend a lot of time on the train and often I'm trying to write a talk or something like that on the train. And when I'm in a hurry and someone's having a conversation behind me, I find it much, much harder to ignore their, uh, their conversation that's happening behind me. And, you know, there's loads of evidence that that is kind of true as a pattern. So, so all children, you know, whether short or long-term stress state they're more distractible when we're at high stress but then there's also the flip side of this which is we also find it harder to concentrate when we're at particularly low stress so this isn't something I tend to think about so much and um, living in London because you know the schools that I work in primarily are you know I work a lot with Newham Learning and I work a lot with um a chain called Fenny's, who, who, who are a chain of nurseries in, in South East London. And both of those are relatively inner city groups. And we know that inner city children tend to be higher stress. So I tend to be very focused on the, the overstressed, overexcited kids. But actually, if you go, so I was talking down in, in, in um, Newquay, down in Cornwall, um, with actually a group that, that work in the middle of Cornwall, so kind of a very rural area. And I was talking about this kind of understressed. So this is children, you know, who, who are looking a bit drowsy, might be kind of falling asleep, you know, that type of thing. Um, and, and, and that obviously, you know, you don't get very much in London just because there's so much going on that the children tend to be very different. But for, so for children working with kind of with other groups of children, this understressed where you can't really, you know, get yourself kind of awake enough to be really paying attention to it or you're, you know, you're, you're kind of lethargic or anything like that. That also associates with finding it harder to pay, to pay attention. So so the best attention happens it's somewhere in the middle. So it's not just about being understressed, you know, somewhere between being understressed and overstressed. That's where the best concentration happens. See, that's, yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? And, and also that kind of almost where those children are in the, you know, in the country, whether that be a big city like London or whether that be in the countryside or wherever it might be, that actually their, their overall environment, not just the classroom environment, but that overall environment is having an impact on, on how they go about their lives and how they go about concentrating and responding to different things. That is, that is really interesting because we, we don't tend to think about that bigger picture as much. We often, I yeah. think, talk about, well, the classroom's got to be ready. You know, the, the, that learning environment's got to be right for that child and that group of children. But we don't, we don't compare very much, I think, kind of this locality to that locality and, and the impact on children, I guess. Um, yeah, so we're doing um, some research where we put these little cameras on, microphones and video cameras and stress monitors to look at the different types of environment that children experience at home. And, and how that influences their concentration and learning. And the other thing that we're doing is is um, putting the same microphones and cameras on children um, in reception, um, whilst we're teaching them lessons both indoors and outdoors. 
Yeah. So there are a variety of differences between indoors and outdoors. You know, there's a lot of research that simply looking at pictures of nature affects our stress and our concentration. But one of the things that we're particularly looking at is this issue of kind of noise. Um, so, you know, no, outdoor environments tend to be less noisy um, because, you know, rather than bouncing off the walls, the sound just goes up into the air. Uh, so we're finding that, you know, the, the acoustic information that's hitting the children's eardrums is very different between these two settings. Um, and one of the things that we're planning to look at that we really don't have very much data on at the moment is how children from different home environments, whether they're more affected or less affected by being taught in kind of noisy settings. Remember, I was saying earlier that ev every child is more distracted by background noise than adults are, but we don't know, you know, why some children are more distracted than others. I, I guess it will also, that kind of research with the cameras will also give you an insight into what specific things within inside and outside that children are drawn towards and for how long. Um, I remember years ago, I mean, when I first started teaching, I was, as I mentioned to you earlier on, we, I was involved in some research. And one of the things that we did was we gave the children, um, this tells you how long ago this was, we gave them, we gave them one of those um, um, single use cameras. You know, the sort of little single-use cameras that you used to get at, at weddings, you know, that kind okay. of thing. And we basically asked them to take them, take them off around the, the, out, you know, the indoor and the outdoor area, take photographs of, of what, where they found something interesting, where they were, what they particularly liked or whatever it might be. And what we found was that many of them would go to where there was something that was about them and take a photograph of it. So they would take a photograph of their peg label or they'd take a photograph of their drawer, you know, it was, it, and so like sort of at the end of it, we had sort of, you know, like 24 or 36 photographs, all of these children's, uh, children who had each indi independently gone and taken a photograph of their own peg label, which I thought I found was really, really interesting. I, you know, that idea of, you know, you know, we often talk about children being quite egotistical, don't we, of, of being very much about themselves. And I think certainly that, the work that, that we did, as I say, years ago, it certainly showed me quite powerfully that, that actually children are thinking very much about how are they represented within the room. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. But obviously that's, you know, the research that you're doing with the cameras, it's, you know, a big, big step beyond that, but very interesting. No, really interesting, actually. And that, that yeah, makes me think about a whole load of different stuff and about, yeah, letting them mark the environment and stuff. I think that's really mm. important. And we were talking about that in the context of outdoor environments too, that often yeah. outdoor learning happens in settings where you just go and it's, and, and, and how do we let children mark their outdoor environment in the same way? I think it's really important in terms of, you know, getting that feeling of belonging that they, the child can come yes. back to something and then say, okay, I did that. Um, yes. So one thing I wanted to get onto next, Andrew, is this idea of how we can change children's environments to affect concentration. Yeah. Um, and as I was saying, you know, this research I did, you know, th the thinking of, you know, concentration as a, you know, a mental muscle, you know, I, and I'm training my my ability to shut out distractions and focus on one thing. Yeah. It, it ought to work. But the, the, the evidence is that it's not effective, you know, as a way of training and kind of helping children to concentrate better. So from that, I, I, I've gone on to thinking kind of about a very different way that we can use to uh, uh, improve concentration, which is more about the environment. Yeah. So we know that in our environments, there are various things that automatically attract our attention. Yeah. So if I have 
movement flashing across my field of view it's very very hard even if i'm in a situation where i'm trying not to pay attention to it it's very very hard to ignore yeah like you know an autoplay video when you're trying to read a newspaper website and an autoplay video starts it, we we have this mechanism that automatically attracts our attention to movement um, and it's quite a strong mechanism and it's there because it used to be useful, yeah? So, you know, 100,000 years ago when life was pretty dangerous um, and there were lots of things out there to eat me and I had to hunt and gather my food, it was useful that whenever there was movement in my field of view, I had my attention drawn to it, yeah? Nowadays, it's not useful because luckily enough, we don't have to chase after our food before we eat it, uh, but we still have this same mechanism. So, and it's not just about movement, um, it's also about bright colours. So bright colours also automatically attract our attention, kind of sharp edges, um, automatically attract our attention and sounds, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of loud sounds automatically attract our attention and so on. Yeah. So we know that there is a kind of a push pull. So so there are things in the outside environment that are trying to pull our attention in. Um, and then there's me trying to steer myself between, OK, that's trying to attract my attention, but I don't want to pay attention to that. I want to pay attention to that. Yeah. So can we think about controlling the environment? Yeah, so minimising these distractions, you know, it, the, the amount of distraction in the environment, yeah? Um, and this is something I know you guys are really good at, and I've had so many interesting uh, chats with uh, you guys about this over the years, because you, you're, you're really, really... And, and I actually genuinely, you know, when I'm doing talks, I always say early excellence. I've got a really good solution to this. Um, but this idea of you know, minimising um, distractions. So you know, a friend of mine just last week has been setting up his first ever uh, classroom. He's just he's just retrained as a reception teacher and he's just been oh, setting up a thing. And I've been sending, poor guy though, I've been sending him pages and pages of papers on, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. Um, but <laughs> one of the papers um, I was sending was from this great researcher called Anna Fisher. And she does a lot of measuring um, children's eye movements um, when they're in different types of education environments um, and also kind of learning and shown, you know, as, as you guys know very well, uh, you know, the too much distracting background information on the walls kind of pulls their attention up and it gets in the way of the learning. Um, and even on a more fine grained um, uh, level, you know, I, I was sending my, 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 my friend these papers that if you want them to read text on a wall, if the text is going over anything, um, there are any edges or bright colours or movement around that text and they'll find it much harder to focus on that text. So saying, you know, big white boundaries, you know, around anything on the wall that you want them to be paying attention to. Yeah, because they, that 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 if, if there's an edge or something that's trying to pull my attention away, then children will find it harder to override that. Yeah. But the more you can minimise these distractions um, in, the, in the background, in the environment, the better, basically. Yeah. yeah. Which is really interesting because that's traditionally not what we've done, is it? I, I think certainly in recent times, uh, there's been more of a move towards more neutral colours and kind of not bright colours and wibbly wobbly borders and all of that kind of thing. But even still, you know, we, we still, I think, have a lot that going on quite often within, a, within any classroom. And, and quite often that builds over time. You know, we start off with it being yeah. fairly pared down and kind of fairly, fair, you know, not too cluttered. But then in a, in a school environment, what often happens is there's a sort of a push on mathematics. And then we have, you know, can everybody have a number line up? And then can everybody have this up? And can everybody make sure they've got this in the room? And by the time we've finished... We've got a room that's got so many distractions, even if each one was well well meant, 
Yeah. It, the the combination of all of that actually is a, is a, potentially a big distraction to children. Yeah, it, it is tough because there's that, as you say, but also the other thing, as you were just mentioning, is that, you know, I made that and now it's up on the wall. And it is something that changes children's attitudes to their classroom, you know, as you were just saying, and it's something that they're yeah. super aware of, you know. So it's really hard to be, okay, you made that, but we need to keep the walls white. So sorry, it's going in the bin, you know. Um, but it's a really, really tough um, thing. And, and there isn't um, kind of an easy answer. The, 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 the bit that honestly, Andy, I, I normally say as the, the best answer is, you know, the, the, the approach that you talk a lot about, about this idea of kind of modular units within a classroom. Yeah. So you need to have your number lines up on the wall. But if you can structure the classroom so that when you're in one particular kind of area, yeah, you've got exposed to all the stuff that you need for, you know, numbers and counting. And then you have in another area all the stuff you need for phonics, then you have your resources for that task available to you. But you're not getting distracted, you know, more distracted than you need. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so those kind of dividers, kind of a you know the three foot high you know wooden bookshelves that from a from a child's point of view are completely enclosing, uh, but from an adult's will that you see in is a good way of managing that compromise between you know children find it harder to shutter out distractions, but they need their stuff that that's there when they yeah, need. Absolutely. I mean, there are also I think good links with the work of Elizabeth Jarman, who talks a lot about about communication friendly spaces and how yeah. actually those different bays and corners are great yeah. of course for as you're saying for concentration and for not not having great you know, big distractions going on but also yeah. for children engaging with one another too and having that beginning of a shared idea of we're interested in the same thing or we have eye contact or you were here yesterday and I know I know that you were here yesterday and we're going to be both here tomorrow and we're building yeah. up this relationship that learning relationship so yeah absolutely I think the structure of the space I think does really help with that and, and, and I, I see that a lot in, in my work as you said you know that I think sometimes we will organize a room um, or we'll see a room organized in a way where actually the teacher or practitioner has thought a lot about organizing maybe some bays around the edge of the room but the middle of the room is very open and of course children will charge through it you know they'll sprint through it and then they that's distracting to the adults and it's also distracting to that child and to other children as well. And so that, I, I don't think we think generally, I think we don't talk enough about that idea of how the structure of the room will support children's engagement. You could, you could organise your room in hundreds of different ways, but actually some ways will be more effective than others. Yeah. No, really have a big difference. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing some work with um, Fenny's this um group of nurseries in south southeast london and um they're, they're um looking at that and it's a really really tricky area for for a couple of reasons actually so there are a couple of other things i wanted to say on this andy um so the first was and this is something uh, uh, it's quite actually new to me so there's a um, a group of researchers in indiana looking at this this idea of you know we call it salient so that's what in our outside environment is trying to attract our attention yeah. Um, and they're saying, actually, one of the ways that children control that, because remember, children find it harder to, you know, not to just look to whatever is kind of automatically putting their attention. Yeah. So this, you know, I don't want to pay attention to this. I want to pay attention to something else that that's what's not so, uh, you know, takes longer to develop in children. Um, and they were talking about this idea of actually how children manipulate their environment um, 
in order to make the thing that they're trying to pay attention to more uh, salient, yeah? So so basically, they because they, they know their brains aren't so good at saying, right, I'm going to filter out that, I'm going to pay attention to this. So what they do is they move through their environment and they pick up things and they hold them close to them, yeah? And they might turn away from other things that are happening, yeah? And that is the child helping themselves to focus on one thing, yeah? So I think that's super interesting and it's a really very different way that I'm used to thinking about classroom design. I'm used to thinking about, okay, you know, how do we control it so that there's not too much going on, so that there are, you know, white edges around the places where we want to concentrate on, you know, how do we worry about the stuff on the walls? But this kind of suggests a flip side, which is it's this ability to interact with things that's super, super important, yeah? Um, And it's this ability to pick pick things up and move them around the room, take them to somewhere where I find it easier to interact with them. So that's another thing that, again, I know you guys think about a lot, you know, when, when you're talking about classroom design, but I'd never really linked it to concentration before. Yeah, it's interesting stuff, isn't it? Interesting yeah. stuff. I, when I, I guess there's lots of work to be done around that, you know, the impact of yeah. that in that yeah. yeah. we, we see that, yeah. you know, we, we see the difference in practice, but I don't know how much research generally, I guess, in your field is done into that. Yeah, so we, we, we're, to, we're hoping to do a lot more research with these kind of head cameras because that's the type of thing that you really only notice if you get the child's perspective on what they experience. Yes. I find it so uh, inspiring, you know, getting these child's perspective views and things. Um, and, then, and then the second point I wanted to make, just about your point about uh, having edges, kind of, kind of modular uh, spaces around the edge and then big open yeah. space in the middle. So this comes back to this idea of... Um, stress and how everybody concentrates best at an intermediate level um, of of stress. So if I'm overstressed or understressed, they're, they're both associated with worse concentration. So one of the things that I've noticed is that the type of learning setting that a child finds optimal differs depending on the type of child. Yeah. So basically, so one example of this is um, um, a child that I remember um, observing who was naturally quite a high stress, high energy child. Yeah, I, I, I massively empathise with that because that I'm that high stress, high energy child. My kids are exactly the same, uh, you know, very much at the, at the extreme end of the, the hyperactive um, continuum. Um, and, and for this child, we uh, I observed him in a setting where, you know, it was free uh, play, you know, choosing time, um, 12 um, four-year-old children in quite a noisy, undampened environment, um, uh, 12 children kind of moving around the room at once. Um, and in those types of situations, this child really, really struggled. Um, and you could see that, you know, when there was a lot of movement happening, not very much adult interaction, um, a lot of child and child, very unpredictable, very unstructured, this child really struggled. And you could see his movement patterns would get faster and faster around the room, um, and then um, eventually he would do something, you know, who's a very bright kid, you know, who understood that, you know, it's important to share. But then he, he would be overstimulated by too much noise happening and then would go up and, you know, try and snatch a toy off another child. And then that would lead into a series of events, you know, uh, that would end up with him getting told off and, you know, unhappy and things. Um, so he couldn't cope with a, being a, in an unstructured, noisy environment. But that same child, you put him in a structured quiet predictable environment and he was the best concentrator in there yeah so he couldn't concentrate when things were noisy and unpredictable but in a quiet structured environment 
he was absolutely the best concentrator, asking really, really bright, really, really interesting questions, yeah? And, but the other children were absolutely fine in a noisy, more unpredictable environment, but really struggled when things were quiet, when they had to have their bum on the floor, uh, when they had to raise up their hand, and you could see those children starting to drift off to sleep. You know, they find it hard to stay engaged, yeah? So this really comes back to this idea of it's everybody concentrates best in the sweet spot in the middle, yeah? But if I have a child who, who's naturally really overstressed, the, I want to be reducing the stimulation. So I want to be putting that child in as unstimulating environment as possible, yeah, to improve their concentration. But if I've got a child who's naturally understressed, who's, you know, often quite lethargic, you know, not high energy levels, you want to be putting that child into a more stimulating environment and that will have the same effect of increasing their concentration. So it's just a really interesting thing, you know, that makes the task of designing an earliest classroom even harder. That, uh, you know, some children, and it's not just, you know, for communication or for whatever point of view, some children will actually do their best concentrating in a quiet, shuttered environment and other children will concentrate better, you know, when things are a bit more open, a bit more unpredictable, you know, that type of mm-hmm. thing. So, um, yeah, no easy answers to all that. Isn't it? Yeah, it makes it even more complicated, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and the last thing was just this, you know, on this theme of, you know, the traditional approaches to what concentration is, understanding that, in fact, it's much more complicated than this. The other area that I'm super interested in at the moment is other things that that influence how well a child can concentrate yeah so one of the big things is comprehension and this again is something that when people are talking about children who struggle to concentrate in the way that other children would do yeah one of the roots that i think is really really important that's massively underappreciated is just if they if they understand what's happening they find it much much easier to keep their focus on it yeah so for example one weird study that i remember reading with babies was um if you show them a tv clip and they'll watch it and then if you show them exactly the same tv clip again yeah you would assume that they're less they pay less attention because they've already watched it yeah because that's what we do as adults yeah in fact there's research that if you show exactly the same tv clip five times in a row to babies they pay more attention to it the fifth time that they watch it than the first yeah um teletubbies actually um uh, uh, figured that out a long time ago uh, and you know the number of times i've heard adults scream at that again 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 and then they show exactly the same two minutes of tv again which to us as adults is really weird because you know i've watched it why would i want to watch it again but children love it and they work that out and uh, you know as i say there's really hard evidence that they pay more attention to it the second time you know even up to the fifth time with younger babies yeah that that is really interesting isn't it that's that that um repetitive nature is something that that even when you think back when i think back to sort of things that would have been children's television programs when i was little which is way 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 ages ago yeah um it, the, I guess the, the programmes that you remember most dearly are the ones that were basically the same episode over and over again. Yeah. You know, and I can think yeah. of loads of them that were basically yeah. the same thing repeated with a slight yeah. twist. But it was, the you know, like Bagpuss, for example. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know how old you are, Sam, so Bagpuss may well not be. Uh, I'm 43, so I, I, I don't maybe I don't remember Bagpuss very well. I've seen it, yeah. Um, but no, no, there's lots of them like that, yeah. Um, and then, so the... I think the reason why that is, um, and um, 
yeah, you're right. It's definitely true for a lot, lots of lots and lots of TV shows. And the reason is this comes back to this idea that I was mentioning earlier with concentration, which is we don't know what's going on inside a young child's head, and, and we tend very much to assume that they experience the world similarly to how we do. Yeah, so we tend to assume that okay, I've watched that clip. And as adults, when you're watching a TV clip, you process everything that's happening. You know, it's quite easy to, to follow. Yeah. But children, particularly young children, they won't, their brains are much, much less efficient at processing that information. Yeah. So, so things start to blur uh, much, much more quickly. So we can perceive 10 things happening per second. Um, a 12 month old can perceive one thing happening per second. A six month old can perceive one thing happening every five seconds. So anything that happens faster than five seconds just becomes a blur in their head. Yeah. They also find it much harder to work out where the faces are on a screen um, uh, than we do. Much, much harder to work out the facial emotions. They find it harder to pick apart what's the voice of the character than the background noise. All of these things that we're so good at, we're not even aware it's a hard task for our brains to do. But children's brains find it really, really hard. Yeah. So the more time they get to practice perceiving that one particular TV clip, yeah, by watching it again and again and again, the easier they find it to process. Yeah. And it's because of that, the fact that they can just understand more of the content that they find it easier to concentrate on. Yeah. It's the same with books, you know, reading. A lot of children go through this phase, you know, my son certainly went through There's some books that we must have read like a thousand times at least just again and again and again brown bear you know brown bear what do you see yeah. um, and it's that he needs that high level of repetition yeah to practice for his brain to practice making sense of that information and the more his brain can make sense of it the easier he finds it to concentrate on so so that's kind of just it, it I, I think it's you know i wanted to just mention that at the end because it's also something that has implications for practice you know if I've got a child who's not so well at concentrating you know what are some of the things that we can do uh, to to pay attention there are other things as well that I, I haven't got time to go into now about you know another reasons why sitting reading one-on-one -on -one is really helpful is that it, it they, they find the physical contact very relaxing uh, they they, it, they find it easy to stay in one place because you know they're, they're sat close to you you know they learn kind of associations with concentration that are also really really important but yeah, yeah. I, th I think what you were saying just then about that idea of repeating something over and over is very interesting because a, a lot of the the more recent schemes, particularly sort of literacy schemes um, in schools at the moment, very much adopt that idea of repeated patterns. So repeated structures and patterns, um, sometimes to the point of kind of over overdoing that, I think, personally. Oh, interesting. Well, in, in overdoing it in the sense of what? So what? You think you well, get the you get well, the. I kind, of, I kind of my own personal feeling is that, and maybe maybe our conversation changes this idea. I don't know, but but my own personal feeling is that if a child hasn't learned something in the way that you've taught it, and you've you've taught it like that, that if you're now going to try and do exactly the same thing again, and you're expecting them to still learn it, that actually you're missing the point really that probably if it didn't work the first time is that actually you you ought to be varying what you're doing a bit because actually they were showing you initially that that didn't work yeah. and yet actually I also agree with what you're saying that actually children will watch the same thing or listen to the same story and, and engage in a different way the second third fourth fifth time so I get that too do you see what I mean that, that yeah, it, it, it does raise a question for me yeah, and, and there are, you know, there, there's, 
there are ways of doing the same thing in a slightly different way, which might might be a compromise between the two uh, two yeah. ways of seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sam, that has been absolutely brilliant. I am I am delighted um, that that you've joined us. I think it's been so interesting to listen to you. Um, it's an area that I said earlier on that I don't think we talk enough about. That that actually what underpins that learning process. You know, all of the research that goes into it. We talk a lot about the work of feral larvas on well-being and involvement and engagement. We talk we talk about, of course, the characteristics of effective learning. But there is real up-to-date information and research going on now all of the time around young children's learning in a way that, that even sort of going back, say, 10, 15 years, that research and that depth of knowledge about what's happening in the brain wasn't necessarily there. And it, it's so interesting to actually hear that up-to-date information about that ongoing research. So, so yeah, thank you so yeah. much for joining us. Oh, good. Well, I'm really impressed because you guys are always, you, you early excellence, if anywhere, is up to, always incredibly up-to-date with the latest things. So, uh, so that's really nice to hear. Um, and also just finally, hopefully, lots more research to come, particularly on this idea of minimising noise, auditory noise, and what can we do about this problem of, you know, children find it harder to focus on one person talking in a noisy environment. But it's really, really hard to think of practical things, you know, that we can do uh, to minimise this. Because it's just practically, it's very expensive to, you know, you could bring in noise dampeners in every classroom, but that would cost millions and millions of pounds. So if anyone's got any ideas for that, um, uh, then then just if you can get them in contact, I'd be really, really interested to hear, Andy. Fantastic. Sam, if there is, um, is there anywhere that, that people can kind of follow your work and follow your research and the sorts of it in an ongoing way? Is, there, is, there, is that yeah, possible? So the, yeah, the best place is, so, um, so I've got a personal website, so that's www.profsamwas.com. Um, and then I've got a lab website, so that's www.uelbabydev.com. Um, and there are links, all the social media links are on those websites. So those are the easiest places to go. Sam, thank you again for joining us. That's been brilliant. Well, it's been really fun. Thanks so much for having me. Bless you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. So there you go. Thank you very much to Sam for taking the time to talk to us for the podcast. Definitely gave us lots to consider and reflect on there. Now, as I mentioned earlier on in the lead up to interviewing Sam, I watched lots of video clips online on YouTube um, of Sam on the different programs that he's taken part in, but also on a range of other things as well. Um, and if Sam in the interview has really got you thinking, I'm sure he has, um, I'd certainly recommend seeking out the different video clips that are available. They're just available on YouTube. Um, so I'd particularly recommend Sam's TED Talk on how modern life is changing childhood. It's well worth watching, well worth seeking out. Okay, um, so yeah, I hope you've enjoyed the episode. Thank you very much for joining us, wherever you happen to be. That's about it for this week. Um, we'll see you next week. Thank you.